as he clambered ever higher and saw a handful of others doing the same, he was struck by a thought that would remain with him for years to come. That morning's fighting owed nothing to the much-decorated generals and chiefs of staff, but everything to the heroic individuals in the lesser ranks. True courage is found in those who believe that there are things in life that are worth fighting for and worth dying for. You can't buy valor, and you can't pull heroes off an assembly line. That is an excerpt from a book called How the Allies Won on D-Day, Soldier, Sailor, Frogman, Spy, Airman, Gangster, Killer, Die. I said I wasn't going to say anymore, but I really like that. And this is Emily Wilkins, your host of The Evaluation, the New Age Book Club. I skipped way ahead, partially because... The first part of this story, not that it's bad, it's obviously very good. I told you some really cool stories. Um, it's just, I think, a lot to go through. And, and this book is like 500 pages. Um, and he, you know, Milton is a really good storyteller. So I figured uh, the best way. It's just kind of, you know, kind of catch up with where I currently am. Um, I started reading this book and I didn't think I was going to do it for the podcast. And then I realized I was really enjoying it. And I enjoy history a lot more uh, than some of these other books that I've uh, been reading. And I was like, you know what? I think it's time. I think it's time to... uh, Time to jump back in. So, for those that don't know or don't remember, um, Omaha and Utah, uh, Force O and Force U are the American forces of D-Day, the D-Day invasion. So we're going to jump to uh, thirteen, chapter 13, Omaha. So long, good luck. See you on the beach. Watch for the French girls. See you in Berlin. The young men of A Company were in high spirits as they boarded their landing craft at 4.30 a.m. and prepared to head towards Omaha Beach. Each of the six boats contained 31 youths who were in or who were to be in the vanguard of the attack. They were a tightly knit band who were trained together for more than a year Many uh, had even closer ties. 30 of them came from the same hometown of Bedford in Virginia. They felt part of one big family. So, that's A Company. Um, Vanguard means the front, for those that don't know. That means these young men were going to be the first to hit the beach. Uh, so they they talk about um, a young man named Jimmy Green. And uh, he's an English buccaneer with a first for, for a thirst for adventure and a keen sense of maritime history. 
At 23, he was older than many in a company. And uh, his squinted eyes and salt-stiff hair were testimony of his storm-tossed months at sea. Green came from a seafaring port in Bristol. Um, so he's a British guy. So this British guy is faring some of these troops in, right? So the thing uh, that needs to be, I, I think, mentioned here, a lot of the people or a lot of the um, forces that landed, American forces, were rangers. Uh, rangers are special forces of the army. Special operations, I should say. Uh, these gentlemen... Um, we're not rangers. <laughs> um, and, and he says so here. He, um, Milton is, uh, he's, he said he was somewhat aghast, therefore, when introduced to the men charged with storming Omaha Beach in the first wave. They were a friendly but shy bunch of fresh-faced lads who most would have felt home in Ivory Bridge, a little rural town in, uh, Devon. Where they were trained for the invasion. He found them polite and kindly. A group of helpful young men. Who found, who would run errands for the elderly in their hometowns. But they were entirely lacking the warlike spirit of the rangers. Their leader was a clean shaven young chap named Taylor Fellers. A construction foreman in his previous life. Who was the sort of community uh, mainstay that would be found in a number of towns in the Blue Ridge foothills of Virginia, nicknamed Tail Feathers on account of his prowess in high school spirit team. He was widely liked and much respected. Industrious, competent, and thoroughly reliable was the opinion of one who knew him well. So, these young men are uh, about to touch on on Omaha Beach, and they are not rangers. <laughs> so the Allied planners divided Omaha Beach into seven sections. This on the, the page, top of page uh, 205, if you have the book. Um, and each had its own code name. Charlie, Dog Green, Dog White, Dog Red, Easy Green, Easy Red, Fox Green. A company leading the vanguard onto Dog Green. What made their mission all the more difficult was the fact that Omaha Beach, like Utah, had been heavily fortified with pillboxes, reinforced bunkers, and machine gun posts. Green's orders were to land the men on the beach at 6.36 a.m., which required his craft to push off from the Empire Javelin some two hours earlier. The craft set off under the cover of darkness and were still five miles from the beach when they happened across a second little flota laden with tanks. What the hell are the E's doing here? Asked an incredulous green. The tanks were meant to land on the shore in advance of the infantry and should therefore have been far closer to land. Fellers was visibly shocked. They're supposed to be ahead of us, he said. 
It was a crucial part of the landing plan. Without tanks already on the beach, the young men of the young men of A Company would have no artillery support. They're not going to make it, said Green, who checked his watch and realized they were woefully behind schedule. They were really plunging into the waves, going as fast as they could, but they were only doing what five knots to our eight, and they were uh, shipping water. So, <clears throat> this is a fundamental part of D-Day. The tanks are supposed to land first, the men behind them. And the reason the tanks had to land first was to take out these bunkers and these pillboxes. So pillboxes, if you ever watched a war movie, for those that don't know, um, you'll see it's built into a lot of times what's already there. And there's like a slit for someone just to look out and gun you down. It's usually on the high ground because you usually want to take the high ground. Well, yeah, it, it gets rough. And, um, you know, there's supposed to be craters. Um, there's supposed to be places for them to hide. Jimmy Green and, uh, you know, and his Jimmy Green is uh, realizing, okay, this isn't it. Uh, Taylor Fellers, he's like, okay, we're going to do what we can. And so on uh, page 208, now we're going to jump to the other side. They could be mowed down with very little effort, but Wagner had temporarily frozen, partly out of panic and partly because he had realized the enormity of what he was about to do. I saw those men in olive brown uniforms splashing through the water towards the sand. They looked young and vulnerable, so unprotected to the wide open space of the beach. He felt deeply disturbed at the idea of cutting them down with his bullets. Wagner was 19 years old from Hanover, a boyish young lad who cocked his snock at Nazi regulations by wearing his military beret at a list and posing bare chest for photographs. Like his teenage um, counterpart, Franz Gockel, who was on the other end of Omaha Beach, Wagner was stationed in a strong point. WN-72. That lay just a few minutes walk uh, from the town in... I'm not going to butcher that, but so he had spent the previous few hours cowering in his dugout, praying that he would survive the ferocious naval bombardment. When the shelling finally came to an end, he learned that the worst of the damage lay inland. His comrade, Peter Smithen, poked his head out of the bunker and could see the black smoke belching out of the fiercely burning villages. The beach itself was completely untouched by allied shells. Um, so on, uh, page 209, um, you see that, that the enemy, you know, the Nazis say, okay, you know, hey, listen, 
they had practiced countless occasions, but never against living targets. And um, the bullets ripped up and down the sand. It was so easy to kill. It took so little energy. My mind rationalized it. This is war. Even so, it left a sour taste in my mouth. Wagner was shooting down youngsters the same age as him, yet he knew that they would kill him if only they could reach his bunker. Now was not the time to think of right or wrong, only of survival. He pulled the trigger once again and sent another hail of bullets into the exposed young soldiers on the beach. After the first few moments had passed, his mind became automated. I would fire as I had been trained to do, so in short bursts of 15 to 20 uh, centimeters above the ground. Each time the gun jammed, he would clear it as fast as possible, where that every second counted. I saw Americans lying everywhere. Some were dead, others quite alive. If this was the long-awaited Allied evasion, it looks set to end in a massacre. The second wave of troops to land on the stretch of beach were the young men of B Company, who had trained with their buddies in Taylor Feller's team and become close friends. One of them, Howard Hale Bergenton, had originally been in A Company and only transferred at the last minute. He was looking forward to being reunited with his friends on the beach. But he grew increasingly alarmed at his landing craft near the shore. The wind stiffened and pitched their craft into the breaking waves, swamping it with freezing water. They were ordered to bail it out with their helmets, an unpleasant task given uh, that it was swirling with vomit. Bargant could hear machine gun fire and the muffled crack of exploding mortars. Now something that I skipped, but for those that don't know that much about D-Day, June 6th, should know the weather was terrible. I mean, absolutely horrific. I mean, these ships were just pitching, rolling, pitching, rolling in the English Channel and uh, in, in the Atlantic. And there was 6,996. Uh, so 7,000 ships were rolling towards the beaches. And, um, I mean, because the weather was so bad, the Germans were like, there's no way that this is the invasion, that this is D-Day. There's just no way. So it, the element of surprise was there. But now you have these young men, and they're tasked to do something, you know, without because they, the, they don't have the tanks. The tanks aren't there to take out the pillboxes. The tanks aren't there to protect them. So, um, Baumgarten had the impression of being landed into the jaws of death. He glanced at his remnant watch, a gift of, from his father. It was 6.15 a.m. The shore was getting closer. He could see the white steeple of the church of uh, Versailles-sur-Mer. That's the city that they're closest to. From afar, the noise had sounded like distant thunder. But now, as his landing craft approached the shore, the entire coast was roaring in fury. And then, like a blow from a hammer, his head was spun inside out as an 88-millimeter shell detonated in the adjacent landing craft. 
It happened in a blink. The wooden hull was shredded to splinters, inflicting catastrophic injuries on the men on board. Some were blown through the air, some torn to shreds. Baumgarten himself was showered with wood, metal, and body parts, and of course blood. Blood was everywhere, in the air, in the sea, on his face. He stared through the spray, praying for the hell to be over. We can't go in there. We can't see the landmarks. We must pull off. Panic and confusion neared their approach to the beach. They were almost there, just a few seconds to go. Drop the ramp. Come on, goddammit. Keep your heads down. Let's go. Bargarten jumped into the waist deep water just as a German machine gun opened up on the ramp. Claris Riggs was the first to be mowed down, killed in a spray of bullets. A strapping six-footer from Pennsylvania, he crashed face down in the water. Baumgarten saw the surf around him turn red. Next to fall was Robert Dittmar, who lurched forward ten yards before collapsing on the beach. He was screaming in shock and agony. I'm hit. I'm hit. He slumped into a tank obstacle, and his body made a complete churn. He ended up sprawled on the damp sand with his head facing the Germans, his face looking skyward. He was still screaming, Mother, Mom, keep your heads down. My God, try to make it in. Sergeant Barnes had just reached the beach when he was shot in front of Baumgarten. Four others were bleeding to death in the sand, their bodies twitching and convulsing. Sergeant Pilgrim Robinson had a gaping wound on his forehead. He was stumbling crazily without a helmet. His blood hair streaked with blood. His blonde hair streaked with blood. Baumgarten saw him fall to his knees. He reached for his rosary. At this moment, the Germans cut him in half with their deadly crossfire. Private Kovkoski kneeled over as shells and mortars erupted simultaneously. It was a tableau so. terrifying in intensity that it seemed surreal. Men with guns hanging out of their wounds and body parts lying along their path. All around Baumgarten, fountains of sand were being kicked up by exploding shells. Baumgarten saw a gleam of light on the German helmet up on the bluff. He aimed and fired. A miracle! He had hit the man. His expertise in sharpshooting had paid off. The German snipers were now aiming at him. He had already been hit by two bullets, one passing clean through the top of his helmet and the other hitting the receiver of his M1 rifle. Now a monster shell exploded some 20 yards from where he was laying in the sand. It happened in a flash. The cataclysm bang and a wave of lethal fragments. Baumgarten felt as if he had been hit with a base lot, only the results were much worse. My upper jaw was shattered. The left cheek was blown open. My upper lip was cut in half. The roof of my mouth was cut open, and the teeth and the gums were laying all over my mouth. As blood gushed from the wounds, Baumgarten dragged himself back to the water, plunged it in the freezing surf. He then looked up, blinking and still bleeding profusely, for as far as he could see to the left and the right, his friends and comrades were being cut down. All were trapped in a hellish massacre from which there was no escape. Of his buddies in A Company, there was not a sign. It was if it was as if they had never landed. Whew. Uh, I think that's where I'm gonna I'm gonna end. But 
page 215 and 214, and this is important. 205 men had come ashore with the A Company's landing craft. Within seven minutes of landing, Murdoch reckoned that only 13 were still alive. The post-battle report would describe the first 10 minutes of Omaha landings with chilling simplicity. A Company had ceased to be an assault company and become a forlorn little rescue party bent on survival. This was true enough. There was no one to give orders and no sense of purpose. Taylor Feller's mission had ended in slaughter. For those that don't know, I've been on a World War II kick, and part of it is because it's insane to think that you were shipped off to war and often you didn't go home until the war was done. They used to call it shell shock, now known as PTSD. And and these men, these young men, I mean, we're talking 17-year-olds, 18, 19, 20-year-olds. You know, you heard, they said the German, that, that German guy, that, or German, the, um, the British guy that was, that was, you know, bringing them ashore. Green. He was 23. They considered him old. I mean, he was older than almost everyone that he was bringing to shore. It just, um, you know, I'm honored. I'm honored to say I am an American. And, you know, I'm not trying to get political or make anyone feel any kind of way. It's just when you hear about these heroic things that these men did, how can you not? You know? True courage is found in those who believe that there are things in life that are worth fighting for and worth dying for. I can't, I can't, I mean, you can't buy that. And you can't pull heroes off of a thin line. of them already gone. I brought World War II here. I'm telling you. Anyway, that's it for this uh, for this episode. As always, go pick up the book. It is gorgeous, but they do have a uh, hard copy and a paperback. Paperback ten bucks, but I'm I'm afraid of hard copies, so I got the hard copy. If you're looking for something that I've